It's Tuesday, May 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Vaccine hesitancy continues to be an issue in the push to get everyone vaccinated, and we have seen some smaller incentives, such as free donuts and tickets to sporting events, among other things. But Ohio has definitely stepped up its game. Governor Mike DeWine is offering $1 million each to five adults by lottery if you get your shots. Separately, he's offering full-ride scholarships at public state universities to five vaccinated teenagers. Incentives have been shown to work in some cases, but this plan has gotten a mixed reaction so far. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, let's get into the mind of what persuaded one man to storm the Capitol on January 6th. ProPublica was able to obtain a jailhouse letter from Guy Reppin, who was currently being held for his part in the riots that day. He is not accused of entering the Capitol building or hurting anyone, but is suspected of having a gun, and numerous text messages show his planning to put the country on notice that people are not happy. Prosecutors characterize him as a serious danger to his family, Congress, and the entire system of justice. Things were so worrisome to his family at one point that his own son reported him to the FBI. Joaquin Sapien, reporter at ProPublica, joins us for a look into what motivated Guy Reffitt. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This announcement will occur each Wednesday for five weeks, and the winner each Wednesday will receive $1 million. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about still this vaccine hesitancy that's been going on in the country. Since uh, the vaccine rollout started, there was a few incentives that were rolled out, uh, you know, by various companies. Krispy Kreme was doing donuts, places were offering hunting licenses, tickets to sporting events if you went to go get them, free food, all that stuff. But uh, most recently, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has kind of upped the ante on that whole game saying he's offering $1 million to five adults provided they are vaccinated. Uh, I think they're also going to be handing out full-ride scholarships at a public state university to five vaccinated teenagers. So, Joel, tell us a little bit about kind of, I guess, the desperation in getting people vaccinated has kind of forced their hands into these big uh, big money prizes, let's say. So DeWine, he's been a really interesting character throughout this whole pandemic because he was pretty aggressive in saying we got to shut down even when some other Republican governors were reluctant to do that. And so he's kind of grabbed some headlines saying, hey, I'll give a million dollars each to five people in a lottery. And I think, um, you know, it's too soon to know if that will make a huge difference. People do respond to incentives. They do respond to money, specifically, according to research. He came out with it, I think, on Wednesday of last week week. And so it's maybe a little too soon to know if it's making a big difference in you know, the vaccine hesitancy. But they got to get the shots into people. They got to keep the momentum going if we're going to crush the pandemic. The way these prizes will be given out, it will be done by lottery. This is going to start on May 26th. So he, as you mentioned, kind of announced this last week. What have we seen so far, you know, at these vaccination sites? From my reading in your article, it seems to say they've seen an uptick, small uptick, But even the people that went were kind of already in the mode about getting their vaccines, uh, winning these big million dollar prizes wasn't really figuring in too much into their planning. A lot of them felt like I'm probably not going to win anyways. 
there's sort of anecdotal reason to think that at several locations they were getting a little more traffic. But a lot of people, you know, I don't know about you, but I didn't need any extra incentive to get a vaccination. I wanted to not have to worry as much about getting COVID. I mean, that right. to me was a big incentive right there. You know, get vaccinated. You probably won't get seriously ill or die from this dreadful respiratory virus. You even mentioned in your article, there's kind of three main groups still when it comes to the vaccines. The yes group, obviously, who have gone out or are getting ready to go do it. The no group, that's about 13% who say they definitely won't get it. And then the maybe group, they're in the kind of this wait and see. And we still hear that from a lot of people. You know, I want to see more people get it. I want to see what the long-term effects are before I go get my vaccine. Some people, they're busy. They don't have, either they don't have access they don't have time to go get uh, vaccinated, or maybe they don't have the kind of job where they could afford to get sick for a couple of days. Because you know, people, a lot of people, they have a, a rough reaction to it. They're kind of laid low for a day or right. so. I mean, it's, the vaccines are safe, but as with any vaccine, you know, whether it's shingles or flu, it can make you feel bad, you know, uh, briefly. And some people, they, you know, that's not something they can incorporate into their lives. So some people who aren't getting it, they don't have time, or they don't have access, or they're just they're not really not feeling the motivation as much. And so these incentives are a way to say, come on, here's the nudge. Because we have 60% of adults now have had at least one shot, which is a remarkable achievement, frankly. And we need to get more. You know, uh, the Biden's goal is 70% of adults with at least one shot by July 4th. That, that's a pretty easy goal to hit. But I think that would still leave 30% of adults, not to mention everyone under 18, you know, uh, or a lot of the people under 18 without having shots. The children are not inoculated. So there's a ways to go still. The last thing I wanted to ask you briefly, uh, Joel, is because you, you wrote about this as well, is with the rise in the vaccinations, cases going down, it's okay now to start talking about the end of the pandemic. I mean, businesses are already making those plans to return to work. The economy is opening back up. So are we kind of in this end game of the pandemic now? No, I would not say that we are in the end game. I would say, however, that we need to think through what the end will be like. It's going to come in, in stages and phases. It's going to be, I mean, the next big moment is when the number of new infections gets driven down to a, a really small number. You can imagine, you know, less than a thousand a day. So we've got to get the numbers down. People need to know, though, that, that, first of all, there are these variants out there, and you could imagine one of them causing some problems in terms of vaccine escape, you know, immunity escape, able to evade some of the immunity. You know, the worst-case scenario has not happened yet on that front, but we have to watch that very closely. Also, a lot of people think that the virus will make a resurgence in the winter when it gets cold again and everyone's indoors, everyone's clustered together. You know, that's how flu works. There's a flu season and it, and it peaks in December and January, just like what we saw four or five months ago with the winter wave. So I wouldn't say in game. That seems a little strong, but we are dialing it down and we are, we are starting to exit the emergency phase. And as I, as I wrote in my article, the pandemic is a kind of psychological, cultural, political event that traumatized us so much, that's going to end in a sense. We're gonna, it's going to go into this control phase. And Fauci talked about that with us. He said, you know, we're going to have this thing under control by the fall. 
Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, ultimately, after the election, in his view, had been stolen from Donald Trump, decided along with you know tens of thousands of other Americans to descend on the Capitol. Joining us now is Joaquin Sapien, reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Joaquin. Happy to be here. Thank you. You guys have an, a very interesting story there at ProPublica, looking into one of the people that's currently being held in connection with the uh, Capitol riots on January 6th. His name is Guy Refit, and you were able to obtain an exclusive jailhouse letter from him. You've spoken to his family who uh, provided text messages, really painting a, a picture of how Guy Refit kind of became radicalized, why he ended up wanting to go to the Capitol on January 6th and, and you know, do what ended up happening there. And, and you mentioned in the article, too, he had a, a moment of a notoriety in his own life when his own son actually called the FBI to say, hey, you know, he's talking a lot about doing something crazy. So the FBI was even aware of him before the riots that happened on January 6th. So Joaquin, start us off. Tell us uh, a little bit more about Guy Refit and how he figures into this whole thing. So, yeah, Guy is one of the many defendants in the uh, Capitol riot, and his case is interesting for a number of reasons. As you point out, his son tipped off the FBI that he had been discussing his desire to do, quote, something big on January 6th for for weeks preceding that day. And uh, it was great, grave concern for for his son such that he decided he needed to report his own father to law enforcement. And um, we spent a lot of time with the family in uh, outside of Dallas and, and came to understand their perspective of Guy. And they were able to detail how he became more extreme over the course of the year 2020 in in part because of you know the restrictions from the coronavirus also his uh, growing anger over the BLM protests he started going to those armed he started um becoming involved with an organization called the Three Percenters, which is a, a group that's part of the militia movement in this country. And, um, you know, ultimately, after the election, in his view, had been stolen from Donald Trump, decided, along with, you know, tens of thousands of other Americans to descend on the Capitol and uh, was apparently, according to his family, intended to go armed which wasn't particularly surprising to them because he goes everywhere armed. Right. Uh, but, you know, the government has represented that he went with a, an AR-15 and a 40 caliber handgun. And he is recorded having said that himself. Although, interestingly, the government has not actually charged him with a uh, weapons crime because there isn't any other evidence outside of his own statements that he actually went armed. And in addition to that, as it turns out, he didn't actually enter the building. That was interesting. And I want to uh, make that point. He faces a variety of charges, 
including obstructing an official proceeding, which is, you know, kind of the whole purpose of it, disrupting the certification of uh, Joe Biden winning the presidency. Um, but it is important to note they haven't accused him of entering the Capitol or hurting anyone. They recently interviewed a couple of the Capitol police officers who he confronted outside of the Capitol. And, uh, you know, they they said that they had to deploy uh, non-lethal weapons to get him to comply and, and step back. Uh, it sounds like he was pepper sprayed and may have been hit with some rubber bullets. And that's what ultimately seemed to have encouraged him not to go in, although his wife said that once he realized that other people were inside the building, he was not going to go in the building himself, and that that's why he left. But you know, we just finished listening to attention hearing for him today, and they said that he only left because he was basically you know repelled by the Capitol Police, and that he in fact encouraged other people to enter the building, and so that's now being factored into his case too. Let's talk about this jailhouse letter you were able to obtain. How did that come about? What did he say? I, I, apparently, there's some other people who have been charged in the riots who are also uh, jailed in the same location as him, and they kind of often talk about what happened. Uh, they recite the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. They're kind of becoming fast friends in there, so to speak. But tell me what he said in this letter, and then beyond that, what we're learning from text messages, because you saw a lot of text messages between him and his family as well. For the last several weeks, my partner uh, on this story, Josh Kaplan, and I have been trying to gain the perspective of as many participants in the events of January 6th as, as we can. And so we've written to some of them in D.C. jail, and we've reached out to their families to try and really understand their perspective and, and why they did what they did that day and you know what they were trying to accomplish and so we apparently you know guy got wind that of our efforts and uh took took it upon himself to you know write us back and you know it's important to note that his name doesn't actually appear on the letter but we were able to confirm that you know it was it was penned by him with the input of about uh he says 30 other people that are also uh, in custody on these charges. And and we found out that a letter that we wrote and the letter that he wrote back had been transmitted by what's called a quote unquote uh, kite, which is jailhouse slang for a message that's passed from cell to cell. And so the letter that we got back uh, contains a lot of perspective on on why they did what they did. And I think one of the most important parts of it is that in their view, at least now, according to this letter, the idea was not to actually overthrow the government that day. Had they wanted to overthrow the government, they would have succeeded. Beyond that, too, uh, text messages that you saw between him and his family showing that he was going full bore. I think I wanted to say when he was planning on being armed, he said he's going to be in full battle rattle. And really, you know, maybe he didn't even know what to expect, as you kind of alluded to, but prepared to do a lot of stuff, it seemed like. I think what's most interesting to me about the texts between 
him and his family are actually that this is the kind of person who views what he did at the Capitol as uh, an essential step to protect his family from what he sees as government tyranny. So what he was telling his wife and kids when he left is that this is our country and this is for all of you and you kids. But he did say that there was something big that was going to happen there and that they were, you know, preparing essentially for civil war. I mean, he told the family, it's the government that is going to be destroyed in this fight. Congress has made fatal mistakes this time. You know, we are going to shock the world. And then in the same breath, he would say, okay, so prime rib for Christmas, you know, we're going to go and this is what we're going to do. And he was looking forward to seeing his son and unwrapping presents. And so, I mean, it gives you an interesting insight into the character of one of the thousands of people who were out there who saw this as an essential step to protect his family and kind of mixed it in casually right. with Christmas planning. So wow. it's, a, it's a really kind of fascinating insight into this person's character. The last question I have with all of this is how is his family relationship now? As I mentioned, his son notified the FBI of him. You mentioned that he was when he was increasingly getting more political, he was looking at Black Lives Matter movements, but his kids were supporters of that. So where does the family stand now? Yeah, you know, for all the time that we, we spent with them, the thing that becomes most clear is that there's actually a lot of love there for him, even from Jackson who reported his dad to the FBI. In some ways, Jackson was trying to do it to protect his own family and to protect his father from doing something worse. And so Jackson is now out of the house, doesn't want to live you know, with the family anymore, or at least for the moment, and fears for his own future and, and, and safety and is you know, taking it upon himself to, to raise money to pay for his college and things like that and isn't as in close communication with his family as he had been prior to this. In the, the months leading up to the 6th, there was quite a bit of division in the family over some of the politically contentious things that we saw across the country, You know, particularly with respect to Black Lives Matter protests and things like that. There was definitely charged emotions with you know, Guy Reffitt viewing it, viewing that movement as being uh, destructive and having manipulated young people into, you know, pursuing a, a socialist uh, agenda and, you know, Jackson seeing it as an important movement to support racial justice. And, you know, that was something that was palpable um, often in the in the Refit household to the point where, you know, one time Guy Refit got so frustrated with his son that he threw a, a coffee mug across the room. But, you know, I have to say, having spent as much time with them, it, it, it is clear that there is still a real bond there and a lot of love both ways between Guy and Jackson and, and vice versa. Joaquin Sapien, reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.